In just a second, we're going to hear a proclamation of God's holy word, and to set that up, the scriptures will be read, of course, by uh, Tom Snudden, who is one of the co-chairs of the building committee and also one of our co-lay leaders, and also uh, Kelsey Burns, who is our uh, most recent candidate for ministry. She is in her second year at Garrett Evangelical Seminary in in a theological school in Evanston, Illinois. She got special permission to leave her assignment today to be back and join with us. We're glad both of you are here to share the word. Before they read, though, I want to give an introduction to you of Bishop David Bard. Uh, Bishop Bard is the bishop of the Michigan area of the United Methodist Church, um, is a part, therefore, also of the Council of Bishops, giving guidance to the global United Methodist Church. A bishop is someone who is an elder in the United Methodist Church, serving a congregation, and is then selected to the office of bishop. Uh, bishop Bard comes to us from the great state of Minnesota, um, where they are misguided on their allegiances in football, but um, <laughs> otherwise theologically of sound value. Um, bishop, uh, a bishop in the United Methodist Church is given the responsibility to guard the faith, order, liturgy, doctrine, and discipline of the church. And the discipleship requirements for a bishop to pull off their responsibilities include a vital and renewing spirit, an inquiring mind, and a commitment to the teaching office, a vision for the church a prophetic commitment for the transformation of the church in the world, and a passion for the unity of the church. I called Bishop Bard a curious leader in the first service, and they started to laugh at me. He is a curious leader. By that I mean he is a leader with clear conviction and sound theological doctrine and faith and a strong belief in Jesus Christ. But that has given him the capacity to have great curiosity, to ask questions, to listen to people, to unify people who might otherwise not find unity. Since Bishop Bard has been here, he has guided this annual conference and given to us a spirit of hope and encouragement. And one of the responsibilities I look for from a bishop when we gather together as Air United Methodists is when they come together, when we come together. And the bishop always gives the first sermon, which sets the tenor and tone for an annual conference, and his leadership in that moment has certainly helped us have much healthier annual conferences lately. The most important thing you know, need to know about Bishop David Bard is he's the one who sent Megan Walther to us. <laughs> the other thing you need to know is he's the one who decides whether Megan and I get to stay, so you may want to talk to him following, but... <laughs> We are so honored to have him in our pulpit today, and I ask you now to give attention to the reading of God's holy word and open up our hearts and minds to what God wants to reveal to us now. Welcome, Bishop Bard. Genesis 32, 22 to 31. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbat. He told them and sent them across the stream, and likewise, everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, 
Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And then he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, and saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket, because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. Psalm 27, 1 through 6. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. John 4, 5 through 6, 20 through 27. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of the ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please join, please join me in a moment of prayer. Come, Spirit, come. Amen. I want to uh, thank you so much for the invitation to be here to celebrate with you today. As I, as I said in the first service, I didn't shovel any dirt, I didn't paint any walls. I didn't uh, 
water any gardens or plant any flowers, but I get to be here for the party. And I'm delighted to be here. And I know that I get to express the joy that all of your sisters and brothers in the United Methodist Church throughout Michigan, um, we share today's joy with you. Uh, you know, one of the gifts of, of being in Michigan, football, as long as Rick brought it up, so, so Minnesota is in central time, and when you have an 11 o'clock service, the early games always kick off at noon. That puts incredible, incredible pressure on a preacher. <laughs> the early kickoff here is until 1. I don't know, I get more relaxed, but somehow I'm thinking you're more nervous. Clarkston United Methodist Church, one of the reasons I, I am delighted to be here is that I know that Clarkston United Methodist Church is a strong, vital, vibrant congregation, and I am delighted to hear about all that you continue to do to stay alive and vital and vibrant. Uh, your discipleship pathway, learn, connect, serve, your emphases, continuing emphases on reaching out and on, and on praying together. And of course, simply the huge commitment that it took to pull off this building project. Uh, you are to be congratulated. We are here to celebrate. And uh, I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen with the building committee report, but I told them after the first service, uh, I felt like I was just a warm-up for their report. So um, be on the edge of your seats. That's a great report coming up. But when I think about this church, I think about the words of Paul in his letter to the church at Philippi. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel. Now, you may have wondered, if you looked in the bulletin or looking at the bulletin, you may be wondering a little bit about the sermon title. I, I hope you are. I've, I like to try to get sermon titles that perhaps evoke a memory for people or puzzle people, wondering what it, what it is that I might say. It has at times gotten me into, into a little bit of trouble. So one time when I was a pastor at First United Methodist Church in Duluth, I, the gospel reading, um, I was going to share about how that gospel reading, I thought, talked about the good life as Jesus talks about it, in contrast to the good life as our society talks about it. So I entitled this sermon, Smart, Sexy, and Successful. What I hadn't really envisioned, however, is the church sign we had at that church on a busy intersection in Duluth, Minnesota. So for a week, the sign outside our church said, Smart, Sexy, and Successful, Reverend David Bard. Well, the, this, this morning's uh, sermon title is about as autobiographical, thin, beautiful, and accident-prone. <laughs> it, it may be if I happen to be accident-prone. So what am I trying to say? Well, I hope I figure it out before the sermon ends. Uh, today you consecrate your building. Today that's what we're here to do, consecrate your building. And so I looked up the word consecrate in the dictionary 
to figure out what it is we were going to be doing. The word consecrate means to set apart as sacred, to dedicate to a sacred purpose, to make sacred. Okay. What does that mean? One of my favorite ways to think about sacred spaces and places is with the idea of thin places. The late theologian and biblical scholar Marcus Borg wrote this about thin places. Thin places are places where we behold God, experience the one in whom we live all around and within us. A thin place is any place where our hearts are opened, a means whereby the sacred becomes present to us. Another writer, Diana Butler Bass, tells a story that also speaks to me about this idea of a thin place. Someone she knew, a man named Eric, was pastor of a congregation, and the congregation, by all counts, was doing pretty well. But there was something about worship that just wasn't quite what they wanted it to be, quite what they thought it could be. So Eric took some time to think and pray and ponder He went to a lake in Oregon. Not a bad place, I think, to think and pray and ponder, but he said one day he was out on his dock and swimming by came the largest bass he had ever seen. He said, I stood up and gasped as a sense of awe and wonder provoked a surge of adrenaline through my body. Then he remembered what he was there for, to think about worship, and he made this connection. This is the foundation of worship, he said. If you can take an hour on Sunday morning and open people up to experiencing just a quarter second of awe, wonder, and surrender you just experienced, it is accomplished. Just a quarter second, just a moment when you can experience that sense of awe and wonder. Thin places are places where we encounter God in ways that evoke awe and wonder. Thin places open our hearts and our minds in new ways to the mystery of our own life and the mystery of God. Marcus Borg talked about thin places as a sacrament of the sacred, a means of grace. To consecrate spaces, to invite God, to Make that space a thin place. It's to say we deeply desire that this place be a thin place for many people at many times. I remember a thin place in my own life. I was a district superintendent for a time in Minnesota. I had the northwest part of the state. And one evening I was driving home from a, from a charge conference, a church conference. And it was a very snowy evening. And I was about 75 miles from home, and the the road I was on bordered Itasca State Park. Itasca State Park is the park where the Mississippi River begins. And I'm driving along, and the snow is falling, and the wind is blowing. There are no other cars, but there's these majestic pines on one side of the road in the park. And I'm not sure quite what it was, but something inside me invited me to just stop the car and pull over, and I got out of the car and just listened. Listened as the wind blew and 
the snow fell, and I was embraced by grace in a way that I really can't explain, can only try to describe in some way. And it was a thin place. You want this building to be that kind of thin place for people. Sacred spaces are also beautiful spaces. One thing I asked of the Lord that I will seek after to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. To behold the beauty of the Lord. In one of my study Bibles, there's this lovely footnote about beauty in the Psalms. Beauty is, in the case of the Psalms, the writer says, in the eyes of those who have found in this poetry harmony, excellence of artistry, truthfulness, and emotional immediacy. The speaking of life's experience, the very act of breathing, gives praise to God in the Psalms. God is never called beautiful, but places, persons, and actions associated with God are The sacred is beautiful, and somehow beauty evokes the sacred. That's why I think for so much of the history of the Christian church, we built beautiful places. This past summer, uh, my wife Julie and I were in Germany. Uh, Our son-in-law is from Germany, and uh, we were there to celebrate our daughter's wedding of a year ago. And we saw some of the churches in Germany. And the beautiful architecture, the magnificence of them, they do evoke awe and and wonder. There's something about beauty that does that. The sacred is beautiful, and beauty somehow touches upon the sacred. But I also want to acknowledge that beauty is not simply visual. There is beauty in goodness. There is beauty in kindness. There is beauty in tenderness. There is beauty in the smiles of children. There is beauty in the hug of a friend. There is beauty when an idea connects with you and it illumines your life in a new way. There is beauty when the hungry person is fed. There is beauty when the child gets that backpack for the weekend. There is beauty in a tear dried. There is beauty when that tear falls on your shoulder as you're consoling somebody. There is beauty when somebody is in a place and feels loved and accepted when nobody else in the society around them will love them and accept them. To consecrate spaces to invite God to make that space beautiful. To say that we deeply desire this space to be beautiful in all those many ways for many people at many times. To consecrate spaces to trust that space indeed can be a thin place. That it can be beautiful. But there is an element of of mystery and the unknown and uncertainty about all of this. You know, I drove that stretch of highway along Itasca State Park countless times after that, my snowy woods evening moment, and it was never quite the same. I could recall what happened that night, and that was always a bit of grace, but I never had that deep, same deep sense. You know, some days you leave worship and you know that God touched your heart and mind and soul in a way that you couldn't have imagined. And then sometimes you leave worship and kind of say, well, that was okay. It happens. The song that moved you one week, a month later, you're thinking, is this song ever going to end? It happens. 
A rabbi, a rabbi taught that experiences of God can never be planned or organized. They're spontaneous moments of grace, he said, almost accidental. And one of his confused students said, well, rabbi, then, then why do we spend so much time studying and, and praying and engaging in these spiritual disciplines? The rabbi said, ah, ah, so that we can be accident-prone. Friends, we will be praying and saying special words to consecrate the building today. It's important to do that, and I'm really honored to be a part of that. Yet I think consecration is really an ongoing process. We want to be as accident-prone as possible. We not only want to set aside this spacious space as special, we want to dedicate ourselves to keeping it that way, to doing those things which might keep it a thin place and a beautiful space. So let me share a couple of things that I think help us be accident-prone. Continue to make this space a place of curiosity and wonder. I kind of like being a curious leader. I think that's a good thing. Just this week I read an essay by somebody, uh, and it was entitled, Curiosity is Holy. And the person said this, Wonder is what's really required to understand another human being. It blends astonishment with curiosity. Wonder and curiosity keep us from behaving as if we have other people figured out. He goes on to say, in the case of our own spiritual lives, questions of God and other people are essential to the character of faith. To be without questions of God is less an indication of confident faith and more a lack of spiritual depth. I think of the wonderful serendipity that is the Bible. If you let the Bible flop open and find the exact middle of the Bible, you find yourself in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms with all of its questions, all of its curiosity, all of its expressions of wonder and awe, all of its acknowledgement of the highest joys in human life and the deepest sorrows and anguishes of human life. It's at the center of our Bible, and it's at the heart of our faith, I think. Curiosity and wonder are dispositions of character. Their companion is the activity of thinking. One of your discipleship pathways, a part of the important part of your discipleship pathway is learning, and I celebrate that with you. You know, our brains, our brains are not meant simply to be the foundation for a beautiful head of hair. I am living testimony to that. They're meant to be used and exercised. Thinking matters. I think our world is crying out for a thoughtful faith, for people who can talk about their faith, combine curiosity and and wonder and humility and thoughtfulness. And it takes some effort. Faith takes, thinking takes effort. In a recent book I read called The Monarchy of Fear, where a philosopher named Martha Nussbaum reflects on what's going on in the world around us and the prevalence of fear, she said, thinking is hard, Fear and blame are easy. You may have noticed I like to read. It's one of my accident-prone activities. Thinking is hard. Among the many possible interpretations of Jacob wrestling with God at Peniel, maybe a part of what's going on there is Jacob is thinking. Maybe he's thinking about where God is in his life. 
The wider context for the story is Jacob is reuniting with his brother Esau. And if you know the story, Esau and Jacob, yeah, they kind of had some sibling problems. And he's meeting them again. And maybe he's thinking, what that's, what's that going to be like? Jacob could instead simply be cowering in fear. He could be blaming Esau. You know, all this trouble between us, Esau, it's your fault. Fear and blame are easy. Thinking is hard. And it leaves us changed. Jacob ends up with a dislocated hip in the story. Thinking changes us. Now, certainly there's a lot of richness to that story of Jacob and, and the wrestling And it has more to do than with thinking, but I don't think it has less to do than with that. Prayer. Prayer is another wonderful way to be accident-prone. In fact, the best way to be accident-prone when it comes to God and thin and beautiful places. Today our prayers will be formal. But I want to remind us that part of the beauty and wonder of prayer is that it doesn't have to be. That prayer is diverse and rich and comes in all shapes and sizes. As an encouragement to your praying, and I want to affirm again that prayer has been such an important part of this campaign and an important part of your moving forward in ministry. As an encouragement to prayer, let me share this brief poem by Mary Oliver. It's called Praying. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention. Then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but a doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. Acts of kindness, goodness, and love also help keep sacred space sacred. Just so you know, this is the last one in the list. My hope and prayer is that this place will continue to be a place that flows with goodness and kindness and love. My hope and prayer is that this place is a place of goodness, kindness, and love for you who are a part of this congregation. We need that in our lives. We need places where we know we are loved. We need places where we know people will be there for us. That's vitally important. But the church is never intended to be a place where that kindness and goodness and love is held within the walls. The very existence of the church is predicated on the idea that the goodness and kindness and love you experience here, you'll carry out into the world. Yes, you'll invite people in, but you'll continue to carry it out to make a difference in your world. And you know that and you understand it, and I just want to say keep it up. Final story. Once upon a time, there were two brothers. And by the way, this this story has been around a while. If you've heard it before, um, bear with me. Uh, I think it's worth hearing again. If you don't think so, see me afterwards. (laughs) Once upon a time, there were two brothers. The two brothers had adjoining fields. And even though they lived near each other, they didn't see each other all that often. They were busy with their lives, busy with their their grain, their work, busy with their families, and the terrain was a little mountainous. One of the brothers had done very well. He was wealthy. 
He was married, and he he and his wife enjoyed a good life together, and they had no children. The other brother was also married and had a good life with his wife, and they had lots of children. But he wasn't so good financially. He kind of just eked by. The wealthier brother thought about his, his brother, thought he'd like to do something to help him. But he knew his brother was a proud person, and he couldn't just offer him help so outright. So he thought about it, and he came up with an ingenious plan. At night, he would take some of the grain from his barn and go and bring it over to his, his brother's barn so his brother would have more. The poorer brother thought about his brother and thought, he has a lot. He's got a good relationship with his wife. He's doing well financially, but there must be a certain sadness there without children to grace his family. And he wondered how he could help. And he came up with this idea. At night, he would take some of the grain from his barn and go and bring it over to his brother's barn to help him out. And so it went on. And the remarkable thing is in the morning when the brothers went to look at their barns, there was as much grain as there had been the night before. And all they could do was give thanks to God for God's wonderful providential care. But then it happened. On a moonlit night, maybe because of a change in the schedule or a change in the route, the brothers met. And they'd realize what had been going on all that time. And they embraced, and they cried, and they prayed. And the story is told that when the Jewish people were looking for a place to locate the temple, it just so happens that that spot where the brothers met, that was the spot for the temple to be built. Consecrated space, thin and beautiful, and kept that way by practices that keep us accident-prone. Those places and spaces are places and spaces in which we are moved and changed and comforted and healed and saved. In Jesus' day, there was a dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews about the appropriate place for worship. And Jesus' response was not that it was about location, but about spirit and truth. And in fact, that place became a thin, beautiful place because a Samaritan woman had been addressed by a Jewish man, breaking all of the barriers of the time, crossing the socially acceptable boundaries of contact. It's about spirit and about truth. It would be about grace overflowing. And finally, that's another way to talk about sacred and consecrated space, a place where grace overflows. Grace overflows so that we continue to be moved and changed and healed and comforted and saved. And even as we consecrate this space today, I want to celebrate with you all of the ways this project has been a project in which you've seen grace overflow. Thanks for having people stand and raise their hands. That's overflowing grace. Your generosity, your time, your effort. It's already been 
the overflowing of grace, and we celebrate that. Your tremendous generosity is grace overflowing. Your commitment to keeping ministry alive and vital and vibrant is grace overflowing. So today as we consecrate this space, I invite us to rededicate ourselves to keeping this space, thin space, beautiful space, space where grace can overflows and do those things to stay accident-prone. May it be so. May it be so by the power of God's Spirit. May it be so because of our...